Well, hey, welcome here. It's good to see you. Glad to be here. Uh, we'll try it again. Are you glad to be here? It's great. Awesome. Nate, welcome to those of you joining us. Uh, Central Abbey, good welcome to you guys. East Abbey, Fleetwood, glad you're with us. Grab your Bibles. We are going to jump in. We're going to read right away our text, and then we'll unpack it and come back and talk about it, do a quick run-through, and then dive deep. But I want to start by reading it. Uh, so we are in First Peter, and we're in the next chunk, just picking up where we left off. That's the easy thing about being in a series. You always know what's next. Uh, so we are in the next few verses, chapter 2, and they read like this, beginning at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. It's a really simple text, isn't it? And it's a really interesting one to talk about, is it not? Anybody else want to give this message? <laughs> this is a really great text. It actually is. Uh, most of you have traveled internationally, or at least many of you will have traveled internationally. And some of you in this room have actually lived internationally for a short period of time or a long period of time, been a foreigner living in a different land. And I'm sure that at least everybody in the room has visited some town or city or state or province. You have been out of uh, our little village of Abbotsford, and you, to some degree, understand what it is like to be a stranger, uh, to be a visitor, to be a bit of a foreigner. So even here in Canada, we get this. We understand uh, that regionalism, even across our beautiful country, is really quite strong if you've traveled the country. Uh, if you get back to Atlantic Canada, you will hear the come-from-away attitude of those of you who don't belong here in Atlantic Canada. Uh, La Belle Provence of Quebec, we call it a nation within the nation, a very distinct people group. Uh, the values of the prairies are different from the values of the West. And north and south and east and west, we have this regionalism. And we, we love to poke fun at one another, right, as Canadians. Uh, and this largely has to do with uh, our politics and our differences around those, our sports teams, and, uh, of course, the weather, because we live in the part of the world where the weather's beautiful and we love to make fun of the rest of Canada, right? So as you travel, you get a little taste, just a touch of what it is to be a stranger or an alien or an exile, which our text talked about. Uh, now, most of Carolyn and my travels over the years have been connected to ministry or missions, and we've had the privilege to visit a lot of cool places in the world. A number of years ago, orphanages in North India, and just seeing the beauty of that part of the world. And then a, a mission tour in Turkey, going to visit several of the seven churches of Revelation, the sites of those churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and being able to visit Hagia Sophia. I don't know how many of you have been there in Istanbul, this most amazing cathedral. It is known as the oldest Christian church on the planet. It was built in 536 AD, 1,500 years ago. And it has gone back and forth from being a Christian church to being a mosque, 
to being a Christian church, to a mosque, to a museum, to a church, to a mosque, and it currently today is a Muslim mosque. Probably, however, I was most deeply impacted by our visits. We've had three or four visits to Germany because uh, our oldest daughter, I've told you this many times before, dated a German fellow. He is over here studying at Regent College. He stole her, took her back to Europe. And I'm quite interested in the German culture because now we have two little German-speaking, uh, screeching, yes, that too, granddaughters. And I wonder about this culture that they are growing up in and more than likely will spend their lives at least up until their young adult years until we can bring them here. <laughs> but instinctively, although we enjoy these places, we know when you're visiting, you just know instinctively you're not at home. Don't belong here. The food is different. The language is different. The customs are different. And, and, and we're, we, we expect it. We're visitors. We're aliens and we're strangers. And when you're traveling, you're prepared for it. You prepare yourself in advance. You don't expect to feel at home necessarily. And you're not surprised that you don't feel at home. In fact, you're probably not even irritated. You might be curious. You might be interested. You might ask a lot of why questions, intriguing questions. Why do you live the way you do? Why do you do the things you do? Uh, why, for example, in Singapore, is it illegal to chew gum? Did you know that? If you land in Singapore with gum in your suitcase, it will be taken away from you. And if you try to import gum into the country, and if you are found chewing gum, you can be fined up to $100,000 or two years in prison. Gum is a no-no in Singapore. Now contrast that with Seattle's gum wall. Those of you who have been in Pike's Place Market and stand in awe in front of this gum wall. In fact, this gum wall is probably why Singapore has outlawed gum. <laughs> Somebody came and visited Washington State and said that is absolutely gross. It's not going to happen in our country. So the world is filled with strange laws. Weird and wacky and wonderful. Just Google them, there's some fun ones out there. Did you know that it's illegal to run out of gas on the German Autobahn? It's illegal. Did you know that it's illegal to hike naked in Switzerland? Which, I mean, that's so interesting because after, don't we all hike naked? Like, wow, interesting. Did you know that Winnie the Pooh t-shirts are illegal in Poland? True. Riding a cow while drunk is illegal in Scotland. Closer to home... <clears throat> You cannot turn right on red on the island of Montreal. Have you been there and tried it? Did you know that you can't climb a tree in Toronto legally unless you have a permit? And if you live in Canada, Ontario, it's illegal to paint your door purple. Just some funny laws, right? So for a chapter and a half, Peter's been reminding his readers of who they are, their identity who they're called to be. And so just let me run you back through, remind you again. So far, we have seen that we are called to be a rejoicing people, chapter one. We are called to rejoice. We are called to be a holy people. We are called to be a loving people. And last weekend, we looked at that text. We are called to be a representative people as priests unto our God and priests to our world. And now he adds one more layer in saying that we are called to be an alien people. A strange people. You can take it in two ways. It is a strange world that we live in, or we are strange people. Just look around you. But the point is this. We will never truly feel at home here, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. 
That's really what Peter is saying to these people. And, and if you take nothing else with you, take that thought tonight or this weekend and ponder it. We're never truly to feel at home here, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. We should feel a little bit like a traveler to a new city, state, or country. We expect to feel a little bit of disequilibrium because we don't really belong here. Now, let me make just a quick comment on the context, then we'll dive into the text. We have been mentioning, and you've heard it several times, that this is written to a persecuted church. But we need to be clear the kind of persecution that they were facing so far in this first century. Because it is not unlike what we face today in our culture, perhaps. It is soft persecution so far. The letter is written in the early 60s. And Nero is on the throne, but he hasn't yet ramped up his persecution to the white hot stage where he is putting Christians to death. And so if you read through the book, you'll see there's lots of references to suffering, but no references to dying yet. Uh, Schreiner says this in his commentary, the only specific suffering noted is discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse from former colleagues and friends. That's the only specifics that are named in the book. But then he goes on to say this, the line between discrimination and mistreatment and physical punishment is often a thin one. And hence the former could easily lead to the latter. So you might be getting towards real persecution, but so far it's soft persecution. Why is that important? Why do I bother giving you that caveat? Because it's closer to what we may see happening in North America today. That there is no formal sanctioned persecution against the church happening in Canada, but harassment is indeed arising. So we're going to quickly scan through the text and then we'll double back down and look at a few deeper questions. So it's a pretty basic text. It's actually quite easy to understand. It's not always easy to apply, but it's easy to understand. Verses 11 and 12 give us these two reminders. Number one, we need to understand our place in the world. So I already mentioned that, that our position as exiles, strangers, sojourners, aliens, you see all that language through this book. A rejoicing, holy, loving, representative people. And now he says, and you are also aliens. You live here as exiles. And so we need to ask ourselves as exiles or as landed immigrants, if you will, what should be our expectations of this world that we live in? And even the question, do we expect that we should change a nation that we don't actually belong to? That we should be able to influence? And what should be our focus in all of those things? Uh, Scott McKnight says this. It's a provocative statement. The entire sweep of the Bible teaches that Christians in non-Christian environments are not to be worried so much about changing their environments as they are to remain faithful in whatever kind of environment they find themselves. Now, I don't know what you think of that statement. Some people might not like that statement and might actually categorically disagree with that statement. That we're not so much to be on changing our environments, but figuring out how to live in the midst of our environments. And we need to ask ourselves good and deep questions about what expectations do we have as aliens and foreigners, sojourners, in changing the way the world thinks. Because as tourists, as strangers, as exiles, we, we don't expect to change the countries that we're visiting. We're just passing through them. Secondly, in verse 11 and 12. 
He points out that we are in a spiritual battle. Understand, you are in a battle, and there are two primary strategies, and we'll come back to these later in the book, that we reject evil, number one, the passions of the flesh that will ultimately destroy, that we intentionally step away from evil. Because we recognize the destruction that comes. And secondly, we actively pursue good life. So it's the two sides of the coin. We step away from evil, we reject the passions of the flesh, and we step into good lives. And so in other words, when the world wants to attack us, they have nothing to attack us on. We go into court and the courts have nothing to charge us with because we have lived such good lives. Uh, Let me give you an example. So 50 years later, Rome institutes its first empire-wide persecution of Christianity where they're literally going to purge the Roman Empire of Christians. They're going to put them to death if Christians will not recant their faith, if they will not take a pinch of incense and burn it and say, Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord, they will be put to death. It is under Emperor Trajan. A governor in Bithynia named Pliny. Now, Bithynia, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 1, if you remember, this letter is written to these elect exiles spread across Asia Minor, and one of the regions is Bithynia. So 50 years later, Pliny is the governor in, in Bithynia, and he begins to put Christians to death, as Trajan has said he must do. But his conscience begins to bother him. Because he begins to wonder, why am I killing these people? Because I'm looking at their lives, and they're actually really quite good people. They're, they're some of our best citizens, in fact. And their neighbors begin to come to their defense, and they're going, they're hard workers. They're kind people. They care for the poor. They contribute to the good of the city. And Pliny begins to dig in and do his own investigation. Why is it precisely that we are putting these Christians to death? And then he writes a letter to the emperor, and he says this. This is what I found. The sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they're accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn, the Lord's day, they came for worship, to sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as a God and to bind themselves by oath. Now listen, this is what these Christians do, not to a crime, but to not commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. He investigates their lives, and he's like, these don't seem like treasonous, bad people. In fact, the very opposite. They seem to be like some of the best people that we would want in every city. Help me understand this, Trajan. And Trajan backs off. He's like, you know what? You're right. Unless they're causing disturbance of the peace or something, just let them live their lives. Reject evil and live such good lives. It sounds like Christianity 101. So those two verses, 11 and 12, are like a hinge point. A hinge from the doctrinal teaching, our position in Christ, to now the practical stuff. And he he leads into four examples on this practical issue of being called to submission. Submit yourself, it says there in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Be subject to, submit yourself to. That phrase, submission, or submit, is literally a military term. It's line up under your commanding officer. And and the big idea in the next chapter and a half is simply this, that the Christian life is a life of submission. The Christian life, by its very definition, is a life of submission. Now, first and foremost, and obviously, we submit our lives to Jesus Christ. 
When we come to him in faith, when we are born again by faith in Jesus Christ, we willingly lay down our life, we die to ourselves, and we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. It's why Galatians says, I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. The life I live in the flesh, I live through faith in Jesus Christ. I lay my life down. Bonhoeffer said, the call to come to Christ is the call to come and die. We lay our lives down, we submit. Our agenda surrendered entirely to the purposes of God. And then additionally, the life of submission is lived out on a horizontal level. And he illustrates four areas. The authority of the state. Then the relationship in households between masters and servants, or what we would call employer-employee relationships. He talks about marriage, the relationships between husbands and wives. And, and then he goes into sort of a, a junk drawer category of all the various flashpoints and the various hassles that we will face in this life. So four areas, and, and we're dealing with number one this weekend. So verse 13 and 14, just keep tracking through the text with me. He unpacks the first one. Life under submission to governing authorities. Subject yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, the emperor supreme or governor sent by them. To the emperor or to his designate. Because their role is to keep order. They reward the good and they punish the evil. And it makes sense. Because without governance, without order, our lives would spiral out of control. We know that. And we're going to come back to that theme in just a moment. But we'll just carry on. Keep pressing through the text. Verse 15 is really a repeat of verse 12. For it is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, like verse 12, live such good lives that your lives will silence the voice of attack. So remember Pliny the Younger. He was forced to pause, asking himself, what am I doing? What have these people done except to contribute to the good of our city? Let me just take a sidebar there. Most of you will know that for out, uh, throughout Canadian history, that churches across the country are exempt of property tax. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't know that. We own properties. We sit on a chunk of land here in Abbotsford, and we don't pay property tax on this land, no, nor does any other church in Canada, except maybe in a, a couple uh, small municipalities where it has been challenged. It continues to get challenged year after year in various municipalities, but so far they have held it up, and why? Why should churches not pay property tax? And the issue has come back to what is now called the halo effect. Get it, the idea, halo? The halo effect. What it is, is that municipalities look at the good that churches contribute to the social services of their city. Forget the spiritual impact, because most municipalities could care less about whether we're preaching the gospel faithfully. Any kind of church, any kind of religious organization gets this exemption. So it's not so much that we're teaching the Bible or that we're holding up Christ, although that's important. What they're concerned about is that we're contributing to the social good of the city. And so when you add up the sheer number of volunteer hours that are given into counseling and benevolence and care for the poor, and the churches all over the city are, are providing activities for all ages, for children and for youth and seniors, the, the buildings are being used in many cases like community centers. There are food banks and shelters, and let alone, of course, the main focus, our spiritual teaching. And if you calculated all those hours, it would be worth millions of dollars if the city had to pay for those services to be done. Instead, it's being done by volunteers through churches. So churches get an exemption on property tax. Yes and amen. Thank you, Lord. 
because we contribute far more good to the community than just those few dollars. Now, I think we need to keep this in front of us at all times. As we ask the question, at least I've asked you the question a couple times around here, are we good neighbors? Are we known as good neighbors? And we need to think about that individually, of course, in the neighborhood that you live in. Are you known on your street or in your condo or wherever it is that you do your life as a person that people in the neighborhood would go to? If they need some help, they need some counsel, they need some encouragement, they need to borrow a tool, a cup of sugar, whatever, you're a good neighbor, they would come to you. Secondly, we should ask corporately, are we known as a good neighbor? Is Northview in the city of Abbotsford known as a good neighbor? It was interesting this last fall, uh, you will remember that Samaritan's Purse set up their headquarters out here on the parking lot in, in response to the floods out on Sumas Prairie. What was amazing was our conversations with them that in all of the disasters that they have uh, gone into across Canada, they were inundated, overwhelmed by volunteers in this community. So much so that many days they had to turn people away. They had too many volunteers for the projects they had, had on them. It, it was an awesome thing. Uh, ESS, Emergency Services recently approached us and five other faith communities. And they said, you know what? We would like to set up what they're calling Abbotsford Sanctuary and Aid Programs. We'd like to have some sites in our city where if a crisis happens and it falls between the cracks of government programming, it's not something that the federal or the BC or the city government responds to, and there are people in a time of crisis and they just need a shelter for a short period of time. Could we come to you as faith communities? And all we're asking is open up your building, uh, provide some coffee and snacks, maybe a few volunteers. If your pastors want to be there to pray with people, great. 15 hours or so, we'll do the rest. Could you do this? Now, we haven't even inked the, the document on this yet, but some of you remember about a month ago, there was a fire over on Mount Lehman Road. There were about 100 people basically standing in their pajamas outside the condo, and we got a phone call going, these folks need a place to go, and there's, they, they fall between the cracks of the various government programs. Can they come to your building? And the answer was yes and amen. Of course they can. Open up center court, throw on some coffee, some goodies, and by the end of the day, most of them had settled in, and they'd found a place where to go. It's that kind of thing that the church needs to be doing. 1 Peter 2.15, in action. Verse 16, Peter reminds these people of their freedom under Christ. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What he is speaking about is the freedom that we have in Christ. That as believers, we are now free from the penalty and the power of sin. And although we live in a world that the presence of sin is still around us every day, so we step into our freedom in Christ, but not truly free, because we are slaves of Christ, is how the scriptures define our freedom. And now as slaves of Christ, we use our new identity to serve the world around us. We, we step into our freedom, not a freedom from authority, but a freedom to live good lives. William Barclay puts it this way, Christian freedom is not the freedom to do as we will, but rather the freedom to do as we ought. We're free now to live good lives. Uh, we sing a song. It's a new one. Uh, we've sung it here uh, the last few months. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a child of God. Sin no longer enslaves me. And so as a free child of God, I now have the power to willingly embrace good and to reject evil. I didn't have that freedom before because I was under the influence of sin. 
but that enemy no longer owns me. And then finally, Peter wraps up with four easy bullet points, easy to remember. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You could just put them on the mirror so that you read them every morning, slap them on the fridge or on the dashboard of the car, put them on your screensaver. Just remind yourself, four easy points. Honor everybody. Show respect to every person made in the image of God. No matter how marred by sin they are, give them respect and honor. Love the brotherhood, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Fear God and honor the king. So that's the quick roll through the text. And we could just leave it there. It's, it's easy to understand, is it not? And yet it's pretty hard in some cases to put into action. So I think there's some implications that we should press into. Because every generation of Christians, in every culture and time and place around the world, has had to figure out the answer to these questions. How do we relate to the greater culture around us? Now remember, this book was written 2,000 years ago. Not in North America, but in the Middle East, written under Rome's charge, for the first 300 years of Christianity, New Testament Christianity, Christianity was actually an illegal sect. In the Roman Empire, a polytheistic empire, and yet one religion, emperor worship, was the formal state religion. Caesar is Lord. He is Savior and Lord. They allowed for polytheism. As long as you were willing to declare Caesar is Lord, you could believe everything else you wanted. And Christianity technically was one of those illegal sects. And yet even in that first 300 years, the church just grew incrementally, 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 three to four percent a year for 300 years until by 325 AD, over 50 percent of the Roman Empire claim to be followers of Jesus, and Constantine then declares it the official state religion. Now, some people said that was actually a bad thing, because from there on out, the church went downhill. But those first 300 years, it's an illegal sect. And so the question in this context, 1 Peter, is how do we live Christianly? A question for us. How do we live Christianly in a world that may or may not affirm our beliefs? Because most of us, for most of our lives, have lived in a culture, a North American culture, that has not only affirmed our beliefs, but has actually upheld and supported our beliefs in the public square. In both Canada and the U.S., we were built on Judeo-Christian values. We get that. Uh, we also are very clear that there was never such a thing as a quote-unquote Christian nation. Uh, there has not been a theocracy in North America. There has been no forced conscription that you must absolutely be a Christian. Uh, it's not like an Islamic state where you are forced to believe what we must believe. But there has been freedom. But you cannot read our history, the laws, and the effect on our culture and not recognize that biblical principles saturated the early days of our confederation. And if you go to Ottawa, if you've had the privilege to walk the halls of the parliament buildings, you will know that scripture is literally engraved in stone all through that building. It is amazing. This is the foundation of our country. So here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. Can I be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ under any government. Can I be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ under any government? So look at a few pictures on the screen. And we could put up 
any one of the 240 some odd prime ministers and presidents and dictators and monarchs today around the world, these are some from history, familiar faces, and you look at them and you ask yourself the question, can a Christian flourish under any of these leaders, dictators and democracies, communism versus capitalism, open states versus closed states? Because if Christianity can only flourish in democracies, then what do we say to our brothers and sisters in North Korea and China and Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and on and on and on the list goes? Can Christians flourish under any leader? And so the age-old debate is how are Christians to interact with the world around us? Uh, you remember Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 17, he prayed for us. He's talking to the Father. He's getting ready to go back to heaven. And he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You sent me into the world, and so I have sent them into the world. This is Jesus praying for his disciples and praying for us. And so this question, how should we live our lives in the world but not of the world? So there's a very famous, very scholarly work back 70 years ago, Richard Niebuhr. We wouldn't agree with all of his theological perspectives, but his take on culture and how Christians should uh, interact with it still shape a lot of our Christian sociological thought. He gave five categories. The Christians have tended to live as Christ is against the culture. Christ can be of the culture, above the culture. Uh, Christ and culture in paradox and Christ transforming. Like, what does all that mean? Well, Christ against the culture is very simple. The culture's evil. We reject it. The world's bad. We're right, they're wrong. Christ of culture is the exact opposite. When the church gets in bed with the culture, when we compromise our views and we just say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, and we get along with them and we, we live that way. Christ above the culture is a bit of syncretism. We take enough of Christianity and enough of the culture that we can skip along the talk of it, top of it and not wrangle anybody's feathers Christ and culture and paradox is this tension that it's like we live on the outside. Uh, Tim Keller talks about it like the MASH episodes. Uh, those of you old enough to remember MASH, right? The Korean War. So this little hospital on the outside of the war, and they're bringing us patients. So the, the church is like the hospital getting the patients, and we're trying to heal people up, but we're not doing anything to stop the ultimate war. The war is still killing people out there, and so there's this paradox or this tension. But ultimately, the right answer is Christ transforming culture. That through personal salvation and through social services and on and on it goes. Now, interesting that in Jesus' day, there were four main groups that he dealt with. And you're familiar with them as you read the New Testament. The Pharisees, very much like the Christ and culture crowd. The Pharisees who stood outside of culture, they were the Christ against culture people. Culture is bad. We're better than you. We're holier than thou. Don't dirty your hands in the world. Today, in our day, we might call those people fundamentalists, right? The next group is the Sadducees, or the Herodians, they're called. And they got in bed with the culture. They accommodated themselves to the culture. Basically, when in Rome, live like Romans do. Keep your faith and your public life separate. You would do fine if you would just be quiet about your faith when in the public square. We call them today liberals, 
And then you have the zealots, and the zealots were Barabbas, the insurrectionists. They wanted to push Rome out. They literally wanted to attack the Romans, to, to take up arms, and to force them out. And so we have some of that mindset even today in North America. We might call them the ultra-right of the religious right. Literally those who are like, the, the solution to all our problems is if only we could get a Christian in Washington or a Christian in Ottawa. Have you ever heard anyone say that? This, all our problems would be solved. And then the fourth group was a very interesting group, the Essenes. Uh, the Essenes were really like, honey, pack up the wagons, we're getting out of Dodge. We're getting out of here. We're going to an island and we're going to escape. And they literally went to the north shore of the Dead Sea and they built these little communities called the Qumran communities and they lived isolated lives. They lived like what today we might call the Amish people or some of the Hutterite communities or the Old Order Mennonites. People who isolated themselves from the world. So we would say homeschoolers and MEI students. <laughs> Just kidding. You know what? The Essenes, the good thing that they gave us was that they recorded the Old Testament scriptures. So in 1948, a little boy throws a rock into a cave. You know the story. He hears some pottery crunching. They go in, they pull out these scrolls, and lo and behold, they find these thousands, 1,500-year-old scrolls that gave us the Isaiah, like word for word, showing us that our Old Testament was accurate. So they gave us a lot of great stuff. So, you know, jokes aside. Now come back to our text. Peter challenges these readers that while they're a minority, they can have such a great influence from the margins of society. So you're like, where are you headed with this? Well, that's a really great question. Number one, or two, or three, or four. Number one, governance is a good thing. Governance is a good thing. I could spend a lot of time here to try to argue into this, but I don't need to because it is so absolutely basic. You get this. Every area of life needs order, needs governance. We need a playbook for life. So whether you're talking about how your family is organized, how the culture is organized, the academy, the sports field, the rules of the game, and the opposite of order is chaos or anarchy. And so we know that governance ultimately is a good thing, that ultimately governance come from, comes from God. In fact, God was the original orderer, right? You go back to Genesis 1 verse 2, and it says the world was formless and void. So he had created the universe and the earth, it says there in chapter 1 verse 2, it's, it's literally a cool Hebrew phrase, tohu wabohu, tohu wabohu. That's a great Hebrew phrase. Emptiness, void. And he spoke over the chaos, and he called out of that chaos order. Like tohu wabohu is what happens when the, the grandkids come over, right? They destroy the house. And then afterwards, you call it all back into order. So governance is a good thing. I'll just say that much and leave it. Number two, all human institutions are flawed. All are flawed by sin, and some are clearly evil. So governance is good, but remind yourself, every human institution is flawed. We need to understand this because they are human. They're inherently flawed. They're sinful. No leader is going to get it right all of the time. And in some cases, a leader can clearly be an evil person. We've seen many, many instances of that throughout human history. Number three, and this one's short, our call to submit should be our default position. That's our starting point. According to this text, we give trust to begin with. That's where we start. Now, it might be broken, we might have to do something with it, but we start there as believers, we offer trust, we offer submission. And then number four, there may be times when we must disobey. We disobey 
when we are called to violate our biblical values, our doctrines, our core beliefs. We disobey when we're called to deny our Lord or to teach something that is contrary to the word of God. So you will remember a woman named Jochebed, right? And in her time and in her culture, the leader of the nation said all baby boys will be put to death. If you give birth to a baby boy, throw him in the river. And Jochebed said, no, I'm not going to do that. And she put her little boy in a basket and he floated down the river. And thank God she did because Moses became the deliverer of the nation, right? There was a man named Daniel who served as a government official in a foreign land. And he refused to eat the king's diet on threat of the death penalty. But he refused because it didn't honor his God. Later, he refused to pray to the king, to pray to King Darius. And he got thrown in lion's den for his disobedience. There was a woman named Esther who she as well rose to a position of power in a foreign kingdom, and she violated the king's edict, which said no one can enter the king's throne room unless the king calls them, and if you enter, it is the death penalty, but her people were under risk of being destroyed, and so she's like, I must go before the king even though he has not called me, and if I perish, I perish. And then in the early days of the New Testament church, the apostles are preaching right after Pentecost, and they're told to stop preaching. You're turning the world upside down. This Jesus you keep talking about, would you just be quiet? And Peter and John in Acts 4 said this, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot not preach. We're not going to stop preaching. Bonhoeffer one of the most challenging times in our recent history. In the midst of World War II, the Nazi regime in Germany, and Bonhoeffer and a bunch of Christians around him making and wrestling with the ultimate question, is it right for us to violate the Ten Commandments to take out the leader of this state? Would we violate the Ten Commandments that, that say, thou shalt not kill to kill this one evil man. And so if you've read the story, you know there was a plot to assassinate Hitler and of course it was uncovered and these Christians go into prison and Bonhoeffer unfortunately dies just one month before the end of World War II. Obviously the pressures that we're dealing with today are nothing near what those Christians in World War II were facing. But we've got to ask the question, as all these people do, how do we speak to power? And so for 2,000 years, Jesus has been building his church under every imaginable situation, condition, and government. And Peter writes to these early Christians as part of an unrecognized sect with no power, and he says, in essence to them, you actually have immense impact on the world around you in a very simple way. Reject evil and live good lives. And so we've got to remind ourselves, once again, this is not our homeland. Our citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews 13, uh, 11, rather, that great hall of faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's the hall of faith, people. And it's a really interesting text for the times that we're living in, is it not? Because the last 15 to 20 years in North America, we have gone through a cultural tsunami. 
The issues that we are now grappling with and the tone in which they are being grappled with, uh, the issues our grandparents would have never ever even dreamed that we would be dealing with the issues that we're dealing with in North America. They would have said, you're just making that up. And then the tone with which those discussions are taking place. The vitriol, the division, and the outrage, and so many voices on every side of the issue are asking how much worse can it get? Because it doesn't seem there's any middle ground. You're either on this end or you are on that end, and there is no middle ground. And so the question we must ask ourselves is how do we live Christianly in the times that we have been given? How can we have an impact for the glory of God from the sidelines and from the margins because we're not in control anymore? What attitudes and actions can we take that will proclaim the excellencies of Christ? Our text from last week, as priests, we proclaim his excellencies. And if Christians were able to live Christianly under Nero in the first century, then certainly we should be able to do it today. And here's where I think that we need to reflect really deeply. So let me just poke you a little bit. Is that religious freedom is not a biblical guarantee or right. Now think that through. Religious freedom is not a biblical guarantee or right. Now we love it, and we fight for it, and we pray for it, and we rejoice in it, and we are grateful for our democratic state with freedom of religion. But if freedom religion is a biblical right, then what do those believers in all those other states that don't have freedom of religion do? Because whether or not we have religious freedom, Jesus calls us to live Christianly. Would you agree with that? Whether or not we have the freedom, whether it is stripped and it is taken away, we are still called to live Christianly. In so many directions, I felt myself pulled this week as we studied this text. But I felt compelled to stay focused on that context, the first century, Maybe you remember an illustration back in the winter. We were in Philippians, and we got into Philippians 2, and this interesting challenge, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, do you remember that week I gave you a one-week challenge? You remember that? <laughs> Can we make it seven full days without any complaining? And I failed uh, before getting off the stage. <laughs> First Timothy 2. Paul writing to a young preacher. First, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. We pray for them so that we can live these quiet lives. When Paul wrote that letter to Timothy, it was either Emperor Claudius or Nero on the throne, and neither one of them were friendly to Christians. Uh, one of our elders uh, wrote a little note that he gave me this week, and basically what the note said is this, is you, we, will never get the ear of Justin or Joe or Elizabeth. Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, and Queen Elizabeth. None of us can get their ear, but we can get the ear of God. 
Of course, the big question is, what do you do about unjust suffering? So as we get on into this text, we're going to come back to it in the next two to three weeks. But Peter points us out to our source of strength. And just for a moment for today, it's interesting what he says. He does not advise us to withdraw from culture into some Christian bubble. He doesn't advise us to violently overthrow authority like the zealots or the insurrectionists. And he certainly does not advise us to compromise our faith, to hide it or to keep it private. What Peter says instead is so simple and yet so incredibly challenging. He says, in the face of this unjust suffering, embrace your identity as strangers, reject evil and do good, submit to authority. And then he goes on to say this, and look to Jesus, my friends. Look to Jesus because he left us an example. Think of Jesus' life. He suffered unjustly. He was wrongly accused, maligned, humiliated, condemned, and murdered. He didn't sin when he was under attack. He didn't even utter a bad word. He didn't threaten, but he willingly endured. And in that moment of crucifixion, he said, Father, forgive them, his enemies. They know not what they do. So Northview, we've got to ask the question, what voice do we want to have in our culture? Is it a winsome voice of influence, of serving and loving and doing good? Is it a voice of blessing? Even when there's a lot of stuff we disagree with? And certainly as we see storm clouds on the horizon, we can't deny it. But the question is not how do we get out of the storm, but rather how are we going to walk through the storm? Because these are the days that God has given to us. And so we are called to be a rejoicing, holy, lovely, lovely too, loving, representative, and an alien people. That we are indeed aliens and strangers. And we live out the values of our true homeland, whether the world affirms them or not. That's our call. When you stand with me, I want to pray for you. We'll sing and we'll be dismissed. Lord Jesus. What a simple text, and yet what a challenging text. And for 2,000 years, since you were on the earth, and for thousands of years prior to that, the people of God have had to live in the midst of the cultures in which they found themselves. And so, Lord, it doesn't catch you by surprise that we live in this time and this season in Western Canada with all the joy and all the challenges. And yet, Father, you call us to live Christianly in the midst of it. God, would you strengthen us, I ask, for your glory and ultimately for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.